Welcome back to Kinda Christian. Still wondering if Genesis is an allegory or history, or whether the plagues of Egypt mentioned in Exodus were just natural biological phenomena? Or how about Noah and the flood? Did it really happen? Was it the whole earth? We got a lot of questions about the Old Testament, and who better to answer them than Dr. Richard Hess? Now, this guy is absolutely brilliant. He's one of the top Old Testament scholars in the world. He's a professor of Old Testament Semitic languages at Denver Seminary, has degrees from Wheaton College, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and Hebrew Union College. He's also an editor of the Denver Journal. This guy is one smart cookie, and he sits down with us and helps us unpack the mysteries of the Old Testament. Please welcome Dr. Richard Hess to Kind of Christian. All right, Dr. Hess, thank you for joining us on Kind of Christian. Thanks. Wonderful to be here. Awesome. Well, the Old Testament, I mean, not a controversial subject at all, so can't wait to can't wait to dive right in. Uh, it is such a I'm I'm really geeking out right now and very excited to actually talk with an actual Old Testament scholar. So I guess my first question, when it comes to the Old Testament, because you hear a lot of things, you grow up, you've been told a lot of things, you know, I have a Bible on my desk, but just really peeling back the layer, what is the Old Testament? Is it multiple stories? Is it one story? Is it a, is it a history? How do you, as an actual expert in this space, define what the Old Testament is? It's a big book. <laughs> well, we're good. thanks actually, for joining us. <laughs> it's actually a library, a small library of uh, of resources that emerge out of and from Israel, and that all together seek to describe that relationship that Israel had with God, going back to the very beginning and even before there was an Israel, and then continuing and looking forward to times yet to come when out of Israel there would come redemption, salvation, and hope for the whole world. But there is narrative, there is poetry, there is prophecy, there is uh, uh, wisdom literature, and uh, there is law, there is uh, covenant uh, expressions, there are blessings, there are cursings, there is every type of literature that would have been found in that time just about and uh and reflecting the culture and world and life of the people and seeing how in so many many different ways god was interested in them and sought to bring them blessing and through the people of israel blessing to the whole world wow okay that's probably hard to get on a bumper sticker, but that's good. Okay, <laughs> that works. That works. All right. So, well, you can start with it's a big book. So, it but is. <laughs> that's that's important too. I might just to anticipate maybe some directions will go. It's one of the things I've often said when I've been involved in a debate or something else, and people come up. Well, what about this and what about this? Yeah. A book that big, if you can't find things that at least look like they may contradict or be problem, that's that probably then isn't that big of a book <laughs> because a big book is simply going to have material that's going to raise all kinds of questions. That's just the way it is, and that's the way uh, God's revelation works, not that different from other people writing large books uh, that deal with a multiplicity of subjects and areas. Totally. Okay. Well, let me let me ask you this. So, 
even going back to the basics, and I'd be curious, so as a scholar and obviously one of the, the, the best in your field, is there a general consensus on what the Old Testament is and by scholars, uh, I'm actually, what are the general consensus by scholars on the Old Testament in regards to validity or, and we can get into everything from archaeology, everything. I'd be curious to see where the most agreement is on the Old Testament. That's a very good question. And I think among scholars, you'll get every kind of uh, answer in terms of trying to, to, to look at it. There uh, are those who take uh, the Old Testament and, and uh, have written and argued that the book is no, really not any older than the earliest manuscripts we have of the text from the second century BC. And it was actually written by a group of Jews in, uh, in that time to try to give an identity to a people who otherwise didn't have one. And so they just made up a whole lot of stuff. Uh, there are those who will say that the uh, Old Testament represents an evolution uh, from uh, beliefs maybe earlier in its time of many gods to a belief in one God and that that had, as well as many other things in the Old Testament, political motivations in order to justify, say, a king ruling around the seventh oh, century BC towards the end of the history of Judah and uh, Israel as an independent state. And that really, uh, the earlier you go back before that, the more things are made up and, uh, and false. And there are those like myself who would tend to emphasize a authenticity to the traditions that are preserved and the writings that we find in the Old Testament in terms of what they have to say and uh, might uh, and do give a the benefit of the doubt to the text in terms of its witness, not unlike what we might do to other ancient literature from that time. So there is no one single view. It is diverse. Okay, it's diverse. So is there a general consensus? When we say, you know, reliable, I know when we've talked with the New Testament scholars, there seems to be consensus that whether you, the, the debate is, are the miracles real and the supernatural, but it seemed to be consensus that, all right, everyone's saying what they saw, they believe they saw what they saw, but we're not sure if they actually, you know, were, you know, really seeing that crazy stuff. In the Old Testament, is it a thing, is is the general view from, you know, secular scholars that, hey, this is just a, a really interesting mythology, you know, with some history put in of the Jewish people? Is that the, would that be the secular consensus? Yeah, you wait. What you just described there, a kind of mythology with maybe some legends and other material in it, as far as the narrative material of the, of the biblical text goes, would probably come closer to the middle uh, of the road in terms of what much of scholarship would, uh, would see. What I, I, I attempt to describe that a little bit when I talked about uh, a, a later king in Israel's history, like Josiah from around 620 BC, and writing to justify certain political motivations and, and what we would call secular interests, and doing that by creating a kind of 
a legendary history pulling together some things and creating other things that justified his rule and the expansion of that rule. And that probably is as broadly based uh, a consensus as you're going to find, but there are plenty of people who go one direction or the other in terms of uh, going uh, disagreeing with that. The New Testament, you've got basically one generation, actually really just a few years of the life of Jesus, and then you've got a generation of uh, the story of Acts and the epistles and that sort of thing. Uh, at most, you have the better part of a century. And not so in the Old Testament. I mean, the claims, the texts, the material, it goes back many centuries and covers many centuries and even millennia. Okay. So one thing I've always been curious of is help help us date what's going on in the world. When do we, when do you, I should say you, because you mentioned there's a broad consensus of, you know, of when and hows, but in your estimation, when did this thing start? And then what's going on in context with civilization? Is this, you know, one of the earliest things you would say, or is it, you know, I've always wondered what's going on in ancient China or Africa. This thing, do we have you know, context for what's happening at the time of the origin of the Old Testament? Yeah, well, again, this is, uh, I, let, let me uh, kind of uh, sort of helicopter in here on one or two things that might be helpful. Of course, Genesis 1 to 11 claims to go back to the very creation and move us forward. But we really come into what I would consider identifiable history with uh, the world around when we come to a figure like Abram in chapter, the end of chapter 11 and chapter 12 and Sarah and their family and God's call of them. We can, or I feel comfortable putting that material back into the early second millennium BC at a time when the urban centers were where Abram is, is posited to have done a lot of his living uh, before he, he receives the call from God. Uh, in Ur of the Chaldees, as it's called in Genesis, which is in what would be today modern southeastern Iraq, maybe in that area. And then up the Euphrates River to an area called Haran in that area, which is a really not just one city, but that whole area was an urban metropolis maybe dozens, maybe even hundreds of what we call today tells, sites from that time, people active. So when Abram receives his call, he's receiving his call and where he goes in southern Canaan is actually very much a backwater from where he was coming from. If you're gonna start a business or if you're gonna do uh, even a great mission effort or something like this, where he was at the beginning in Haran and around then, uh, around there would have appeared to have been the place to start that. Lots of people, lots of connections, lots of contacts. Where God takes him is one of those last places on earth where I would go if I were going to start something and get it going. But it's an act of faith. It's an act of God calling him into that. And beyond all expectation, God works with him that through him, through Sarah, uh, God blesses the nations of the world. So that's a little bit of an example of some of the historical world at that time, just within the ancient Near East. Now, if you're talking about 2000 BC, 
you don't have a lot of writing. So history is kind of a reconstruction of the world in Africa, in the Americas, in China, even some writing in China that could date back to that time, but not a lot. And a lot of it depends on later traditions. There are kings and emperors and dynasties there at that time. And there may well have been in other parts of the world that we simply don't know about and don't have information about. But it's clear that when Abram begins at that time, there's already civilizations, worlds and countries and nations developed outside of the world of, uh, of the Middle East. So he is uh, one person called by God into into the world around him. So I think, pardon the bad pun here, but I guess the genesis of my question was yeah. that, uh, you know, if you were assuming one actually takes the perspective that this is a divine book and this is an accurate and that there is a God and he and this is his unique, you know, letter, if you will, and story to mankind. Why would he do it in the area that he did it? And, you know, why wouldn't he be doing a, an Old Testament in China or Africa or what else is going on? Why do you think it would take place where it did? Well, why would he do it? What is it? Um, it's a question because remember the story starts before that. And so if you go back to the time of Noah and the flood, you've got Noah coming off, uh, off of the ark. You've got him doing what he does and offering sacrifice and being uh, apparently the most righteous person in the world, according to the Bible at that time. And he and his family come off the ark and they become, from the biblical standpoint, the progenitors of the entire human race, everybody else. And what God makes with Abram, or excuse me, with Noah and his family is called a covenant. It's the first such identified covenant in the Bible. And it's a relationship in which he promises Abram that he will never again destroy the world by a flood like that. But he also says to, uh, excuse me, he promised that, that to Noah. I keep getting confused. But he also says to Noah and his family, hey, you guys now in Genesis 9, 6, I created the human race in the image of God. He really screwed it up some and was really killing everybody and they would have self-destructed according to Genesis 6 and completely wiped the human race off the face of the earth as well as probably most of the rest of life had I not intervened with the flood and delivered by an act of grace, you Noah and your family. Now what I want you to remember is that it is wrong <laughs> to go out and shed innocent blood. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds innocent blood by, by others, shall their blood be shed. I believe it's the introduction of a basic system of morality, capital punishment for the killing of innocent people. And I say that because that's a basic element, or that is the element of what I believe is a kind of natural theology that begins there and is spread throughout the entire world. So that covenant, although many people in many nations maybe lost a memory of just how it originated, but it continued. 
and you have this sense, a basic sense of natural law that's already present, and the call to follow that and to be open maybe to revelation from God. So before we have Abram, we have that. So that's going on there. So why then does God choose for extra revelation and maybe extra blessing? He chooses Abram and calls him out. And that goes back, I believe, to the line of Abram, which you find already going from in, in Genesis chapter uh, 11. It goes from Shem, the son of Noah, down to Abram. And the people that are mentioned there, some of them are, I believe, people who walked with God and sought God. But then I believe things began to deteriorate into a kind of polytheism that wound up with people worshiping all kinds of different gods. This is even said of Abram's father in, in, in the book of Joshua. We're told in Joshua 24 that uh, Terah and Nahor and others of Abram's family worshiped other gods beyond the river. And I believe that that had come to a point where God desi desired to reverse that. I don't know why he chose Abram and Sarah uh, other than, I'll tell you, they certainly, despite all Abram's faults, and he has many, he certainly seems to be responsive to God in acts of faith throughout his life. And every act of faith enables God to bless him further and to increase the promises that he does so that Abram at the end is told after he is willing even to offer and sacrifice his only son in Genesis 22, he is blessed by God far beyond even what he had been before. God said, I'll give you land. I'll give you a reputation that you will be known, a name, seed, nations uh, will come from you, and I will give you a meet. You will be an instrument of blessing to the rest of the world. But then he also says there in 22, and your descendants will possess the gates of your enemies. So not only will you have this land, but you will also have the population centers, and they will be, and, uh, they will be yours, and that will bring about peace in the land, and you will be an instrument of blessing. So I haven't quite answered your question, why Abram and not somebody else? But maybe there were other people. Maybe there were others who were also given something like that opportunity, and maybe they didn't respond the same way. I don't know. That's pure speculation. It's all I know is that God works graciously again and again. I see it in the Old Testament, and I'm amazed. And to do so, he sometimes chooses individuals that, uh, through whom he, he works. No, it's, uh, well, we, we've talked, so we got into a couple of topics that are of personal passion of mine, of, specifically in Genesis. So you mentioned the flood. We got to get to that, of course, and we got to talk about Genesis. So right away, I, I want to ask, because this comes up all the time, is Genesis history, is Genesis mytho history, is it like a com is it an allegory? Because obviously if we bring up the whole evolution debate, was there an actual flood, etc. Honestly, I, I, I get so many different answers. So in your opinion, what is Genesis? Well, I don't think Genesis is a scientific textbook. Okay. I don't think it's, uh, it's biology or physics in and of itself. I think, however, because of my belief that God is a true God and he reveals things truly, where it touches on subjects like that and intentionally desires to communicate that 
in a way that is straightforward, I do believe that, uh, that there is truth to it. Um, I never get our, I don't pretend to be a physicist or a geneticist or a biologist. And I see a variety of different possibilities in terms of interpretation when you ask things about evolution or young earth creation or this sort of thing. So, but what I, what I did want to say is there's a story. Genesis 1 is very special in terms of the way it's structured and there's something unique and special about that. But from Genesis 2, 4 on, you have the story of the creation of the man, his work, his home, his uh, companion, and then the fall and three and so forth. The way that's written in terms of the Hebrew, the syntax, the grammar, what have you, looks just like Joshua, Samuel, the books of Kings, the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. It doesn't change. And so if you want to make part of that myth and part of that history, that to me is an arbitrary decision that you're placing on it. There are texts in the Bible that are allegory. Uh, the, the famous vision of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. But it says there in the text, these bones are Israel. Gives you a flag. Famous text in Ecclesiastes 12 where it talks about old age. Remember the creator in the days of your youth before old age comes. And then there's a whole allegory on old age. The almond tree blossoming white hair coming and the grinders ceasing and maybe referring to teeth and some falling out, things like this. It's a story, it's a picture of old age, but it, it's, it's flagged, it's, it's indicated at the beginning. You don't have that in Genesis. Genesis presents its account very straightforwardly from chapter two on as though it's giving an account. So how does that fit with different aspects of it? Well, then we have to look at the text and uh, what we know of history, archaeology, whatever. So uh, that's interesting. So one of the favorite questions that comes up is so the order of creation seems to dispute the the scientific you know consensus of that. So when you look at Genesis, and so how does one just think through it and go, okay, if the Genesis says stars came um, after or trees came before stars, do we just go, okay? That's just not trying to be biology. So ignore that, or what am I? What do I make of that? Well, remember, that's chapter one. And I said chapter one's kind of special. It's organized in a very special way. You've got these seven days of, uh, of creation. And uh, I think there's a reason for that. In fact, I think there's a couple reasons for that, uh, which I'll try to summarize. And you just tell me when I've said too much. Um, First of all, the basic, one of the basic teachings of Genesis 1 is the value of life. Genesis 1 isn't really interested in God creating things, really doesn't, isn't particularly concerned about when did he create the solar system or, or even the earth. It says in the beginning he created the heavens and the earth, and he does, but when he creates those, their backdrops, their context, the first three days, uh, day and night, sort of the beginning of time rolling along, and then uh, the dry land, the sky, and the waters. All of those are contexts, and even the plants for life, life being animal life and ultimately human life. That's days four, five, and six. It starts with the stars and the 
the, in, in the heaven that are very, very far away. They kind of move around. Some of them do a bit like the planets and things. And it just uh, kind of populates that area far away and doesn't really talk much more about them. But then it talks about the birds and the fish and the, the wild animals and the domestic animals on the and then ultimately the man and the woman. And the whole emphasis is going towards the creation of life. It shows that God really, really values life above every, you know, that's his number one thing. And not just a little itty bitty bit of life, but life abundant, swarming, filling the earth, reproducing everywhere the, the value that God places on life. So this story in Genesis is in part about the logical process that you go through to create the world of life as we have it. And I don't think it's really that concerned about chronology, but it is concerned about the sort of logic. Same way then mm. with, um, with those seven days. Why seven days? Why not eight? Why not five? But seven is very special because it says on, because it's building up and you see it going forward. And on the sixth day, you got the land animals, then you've got the man and the woman created in the image of God and the specials about that. And then comes the seventh day. The climax, and seven is a very special number in the ancient world anyway, but why? Well, it says God rested. It's like an anticlimax for us, but that's not, in, not, not from the biblical or, I believe, God's standpoint. The seventh day is rest because it shows that, not because God got tired, it's because God built into creation from the very beginning rest. And if we don't reflect that, <laughs> then we are not living in harmony with creation and with the created order as God created it. Rest is the goal of creation. Rest is where we're going. That's why the Sabbath is so important in the Old Testament. Rest comes, it goes right into the New Testament. Look at Hebrews 4. talks about the church entering into the rest that God has created. Mm. Rest, I believe, is the great climax of the created order, and it is there from the beginning because God willed it and built it into the world. It is a great act of faith. If you're going to rest, truly rest, and stop doing what you're doing every seventh day, you are acting on faith just like ancient Israel did. You're saying, I'm doing this because God has set it apart. Uh, over here's my neighbors here and there. They're getting ahead. They're doing all their lawn work or doing all their business work or whatever else they're doing, whereas I'm just resting. But mm. I'm not just resting. I'm believing God. And I'm spending that time worshiping God. And I'm spending that time before him because I believe that he will take care of everything because it's his world. <laughs> it's not mine. Anyway, that's, that's a second aspect of the created order. But once you understand that, you understand that Genesis 1 isn't so concerned about chronology. It's concerned about the logical development of creation in order to emphasize these points of life, of rest. And then you have this very, very interesting, if I may just add this point. Please, uh, um, This very, very interesting point in Genesis 2-4, which really, that's the 2-4, the first part of that verse, uh, verse 4 of chapter 2, is really the end of this whole first account of creation. And it says, these are, and then it uses the Hebrew word, the toledot. Toledot, what are toledot? Well, toledot are variously translated. Generations, family history, genealogies even. And what's interesting is the whole book of Genesis is structured around these genealogies. 
And you can look at the whole book of Genesis in that light, but especially the first 11 chapters leading up to Abram. And, and, and what you find is they're in groups of two. And the first one is general and the second one is specific. Let me give an example. The Toledot note appears at the beginning of Genesis chapter five. At the end of four, you have the line of Cain, which is, goes and develops all the different cultural aspects of the world and things like that in four verses 17 to 26. Then in chapter five, and already at the end of chapter four, you have the line of Seth. Now the line of Seth is the chosen line, and that's a very direct line, but it's also a line that emphasizes relationship with God, a very specific aspect of culture, but the key one. There's where we learn about how, uh, how um, uh, Enoch walked with God, and he was not because God took him. There's where we learn about how Lamech prophesies concerning Noah and perhaps his seed that they will give rest from our toil. And out of that line comes Noah, the most righteous of people. Okay, so you have these, this, this dual, this, these two, two genealogies. And then go to chapter 10 and 11. And again, you have the Toledot mentioned in between there. In chapter 10, you have the table of nations covers all the, the known peoples of all the earth. By the way, it shows how they're all equal because they all come from the same family, something that no other culture of that time ever suggested. And then in chapter 11, you have the line of Shem going to Abram, a very specific line that takes us to, to uh, the figure of Abram and the promises and all of the special things that come out of that. So again, you have these two, two Toledot, two genealogies, as you do in chapters four and five, and I believe as you do in chapters one and two. But in chapter one, what is the Toledot of heaven and earth? Well, there are a lot of people in, in those early days that believe believe the heavens were a deity and the earth was a deity. And so they got together and would have produced more gods and goddesses that represented the different forces of nature and natural powers. But the Israelites explicitly rejected that there was only one God, the creator God. So how do you describe the heavens and earth before people come along? You describe it by days. And in a sense, each day gives birth to the next day in a figurative way. That's why it, it, it sets that out in seven days, ultimately climaxing with the day of rest. But that's a perfect alternative to the human genealogies that the rest are. And again, you have that more general genealogy in chapter one, the creation of the whole cosmos. And then in chapter two, you have the creation of the man. And as I said, his occupation, his home, his uh, his spouse, his, his companion, and everything that comes out of that. So you have the more general and then the more specific, just as in chapters four and five, you have that in chapters 10 and 11, you have that. So this is a big structuring principle to this whole beginning of Genesis. And that's what I believe is going on there. Anyway, I don't know if that's helpful, but that's... Uh, no, this is... So uh, the complexity of this is something that has always baffled me in the sense that you know, I, I, I'm, would all these things that you're, all these points you're making, would these have been completely obvious to uh, a Jewish reader? And it's all, well, they, Jewish, or they go, oh, I get the, the coupling, this all makes sense, et cetera, because here I am from my, my chair now going, you know, if a God is out there whose whole goal is to get to know his creation, it's like he made a really complex book that I, uh, it seems like you need to have a expertise and know a lot of language to be able to pick up on all this stuff. 
Well, of course, a Hebrew reader from that period would have read it in Hebrew. And they would have, have noticed that, that, yes. that, that, that key word. And key words are very important. I, there's a lot going on that, I mean, a lot more than, than, than this in terms of wordplay, names, interaction. Yeah. But these structuring points, I mean, seven as a perfect number, yeah, they would have known. Um, toledot, yes, they would have known. And they would have seen what that is in the rest of Genesis. And, and when it's called that in 2.4, you wonder, why is it called this? There's no genealogy here. You just have the first man and woman. I mean, mm. they don't, they're, they're not reproducing at that point. You don't have a line. So what is the Toledot of the heavens and the earth? And then you look back and you see how parallel that structure is. Day one, two, three, four, five, six, seven to the later genealogies. So-and-so lived so many years and begot so-and-so. And after that, they lived so many years and they died. And then the next person lived so many years and begot that, that very regular structure now, it's right there in genesis one so on this symbolic so it's interesting uh, this just comes to mind so when when scholars just look at that like if i just pulled open my bible and i read this and i go okay there's some allegory there but then right when you mention the genealogy said that sounds a lot more like okay this sounds like a, a history book right but it'll say like so and so lived 800 years 500 years how is that treated by scholars do they go oh that's just a it's symbolic or I mean clearly it's exaggeration because no one lives that long or yeah it's you know this is the result of sin is causing you to live less how do, how do we treat that yeah. well that's a good point there how sin does tend to I believe reduce the number of years um, different people have tried different things there's you can get all kinds of complicated papers written on sexagesimal base 60 or base 6 or 10 and try to reduce the number of years I don't have an answer for it. It's all I know is that throughout the biblical times, people looked back and thought, these guys lived really long. <laughs> and uh, that's how I think the earliest and first readers understood it. Okay, so Adam was we, like 900 or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. And what we do know, hey. and again, I don't try to connect anything before Abram with historical events because that's very hard. But we do have stories coming from Babylon and, and elsewhere. And there's a very early list of kings who ruled that's called the Sumerian King List. It was probably written around 2000 BC. And it goes back, and what it says is that before the flood, and it talks about a flood, there were kings. And it says each king lived like thousands of years. Some of them lived and ruled for tens of thousands of years. Now, do I believe they really did? No. But do I believe there was some kind of a memory of long-lived people before the flood? Yeah, I think something's going on there. I don't know exactly how to explain it. I don't worry too much about that. But I do know we have witnesses outside the Bible that also remembered this from very, very early. Just like we have witnesses that remember a flood that had uh, universal impact. So okay, well that makes as someone in his early thirties that I'm concerned about my uh, ability to live to you know 900 or so. Um, <laughs> I so I want to I want to transition a little bit. You mentioned the flood a couple of times comes up all the time. All right, so you believe the flood actually happened, and uh, I'm curious. Was it a 
global catastrophe? Was this, is any part of this allegorical? And then help us walk through the fitting, you know, the creatures on the ark, et cetera. Like how, you know, I mean, it's, I know this has to be conjecture at this point, but how do you view the flood narrative in Genesis? Yeah, I view the flood narrative as a description by which God preserved the human race and kept it from self-extinction. Now, that is usually the opposite because people say, ah, oh, what a mean God, what a mean God <laughs> uh, we have in Genesis because he killed all these people. But if you actually read the beginning of Genesis 6, what you find out is that once you get through the Nephilim, and we can talk about that if you want, and everybody else there. Oh, can't not that, talk about Nephilim. We'll get there. <laughs> Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, well, this is turning into a course on Genesis 1 to <laughs> 11. Um, but if, um, if I go back and look at that, there is one word that stands out, and it's violence, Hamas, in the Hebrew. It says, the thought of people's hearts, every person's heart was only evil all the time. And they had violence in their hearts and they committed violence towards one another. Already at the end, well, already at the beginning of Genesis 4, you get Cain murdering Abel. At the end of Genesis 4, as that line comes to its conclusion there, you have, two, uh, you have uh, Lamech, who is a descendant of Cain, who says, if Cain was avenged seven times, I would be avenged 70 times. In other words, I killed a, a young man. I'm going to do a lot of killing. And what, you're imp what my impression is, is, and I, I do believe God hates violence, um, but what my impression is, is that there is violence in everyone's heart so much that there is a, a murderous streak that is run through the human race of murder and destruction already anticipated in the line of Cain and fulfilled at this time. And I believe that what God is doing here is an act of mercy by taking the most righteous people who otherwise would have been killed along with everybody else virtually and delivering them so that they could restart, as it were, rebegin the human race again. Do I believe there was a flood? Yes, and in that I'm in unis, unity with just about every major ancient tradition, certainly coming out of the ancient Near East that we have. Do I believe that in some sense it was perceived at least as universal? Um, I think so, but I'm not sure that it covered the whole earth. It could have had a universal impact, uh, but have been a local flood. So when you say other cultures, other cultures, so there are right lots of other accounts from outside the Bible of a flood well, in that area, right? Not only that, but in Babylon, the Enuma Elish account is too, is so similar that it cannot just be an accident. Hmm. This is not just coincidence. Maybe Enuma Elish borrowed from the Bible. Maybe the Bible and Enuma Elish go back to a common tradition. Um, that's a matter of discussion. But there's, there's these, you know, sending out birds and building and bring the animals in and, and uh, so many days of water rising and descending. So many details that it can't be just coincidental. Wow. So I think there was a tradition. Uh, people have tried to argue it's all over the world. I don't know enough to talk about that. But I do know that in the ancient Near East, there's a strong tradition of a major flood that had universal impact for the people there 
remember it. Okay. Um, I do want to get, and I know you mentioned, we've, I know Genesis is so fascinating. Uh, I do want to ask a little bit too, because Exodus gets brought up a bit and going back to the miraculous accounts in Exodus, mm-hmm. uh, is it, how does that, is that to be read as his, is Exodus to be read as history? Unlike Genesis, we talked about Genesis one and kind of the exception made for that is Exodus to widely be understood that that writer saying, yes, like the seas parted, these pestilence happened. This was like a, this was historical. Yeah. Well, again, I would, I would very much encourage you to realize that the Hebrew presents it that way. Okay. People may, people may choose to believe whatever they want to believe. Um, my goodness, you know, it's like with Genesis 3. Well, whoever believed uh, a snake, isn't that a fable? Well, then you've got Balaam's donkey and numbers, isn't that? A then you've got somebody rising from the dead. Where do you draw the line? Well, I, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um because i don't have a textual warrant for doing it that's that's my problem uh is the exodus uh do a lot of people think that there's a lot of dubious uh things with regard to the exodus yes there's a lot of scholars who think that's pure legend going back to that time again i can talk about various bits and pieces of evidence that i think point to uh, an early authentic tradition for the Exodus. But I'm never going to be able to tell you, yes, you can go and you can see just where the waters parted. They don't have a sign that said here or a <laughs> Most port where the staff went here in. And that sort of thing. No, <laughs> I, I, we don't have that. We do have, though, some interesting material because the Exodus takes place in what I would call historical time. It is set. Uh, some people would have an early date in the 15th century. I would tend towards a later date around the 13th century BC. I think Ramses II may well have been the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Interestingly enough, Exodus 1.11 talks about the building of a storage city called Ramses. It's only during that century that you have and the immediately before and after, that you have the line of Ramses. That's very, very oddly coincidental. After that, Ramses dies, you know, that, that name dies away. It's not used among pharaonic royalty. It just disappears. And we do know that Ramses, uh, that during that time we have textual documents from Egypt that there was a storage town or city built by a group of slaves called Pi Ramses, hmm. the mouth of Ramses. So I, this is, Interesting. there are too many, you know, that's one example. I go through the name. I do a lot with personal names. There are a couple of names from that time. Pua, one of the midwives, doesn't appear later, but we do have figures uh, who are called Pua uh, from the 13th century BC in the West Semitic world of that time. Wow. Uh, a couple of things like this that just make you pause and wonder. Again, talk about the plagues. People have done different things. They've tried to say, well, they're natural. We can explain it this way. The Nile floods and you get these different kinds of little animals in the Nile and that turns it red. I don't know anything about that. I'm not trying to play at biology and botany. But, I, but it is true that there, there's a lot of deities in Egypt. Many of them were worshiped. Many of the plagues speak directly or speak to some of those deities. 
But the last two plagues really top of the list. The biggest temple, the richest temple, the strongest temple in Egypt at that time was at Karnak. It's the temple of Amun-Re, the sun deity. The second to last plague is the plague of darkness. If, if anybody knew the deity who is the sun, yeah. and they couldn't control that, so that darkness could come everywhere except in, 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 in Israel, that's a direct challenge to the whole religious system of Egypt. The last plague is, the, of course, the death of the firstborn. Pharaoh was considered a god. The ideology of Pharaoh as presented in innumerable texts, and Ramses II was a kind of megalomaniac anyway, the ideology of the Pharaoh was that he was the giver of life. He gave life wherever he conquered, wherever he went. He gave physical life. He gave spiritual life. He gave the people life, giving them order and joy and happiness to live. The last plague directly challenges that. Pharaoh cannot keep alive his own son, let alone the other sons of Egypt. Now, it's not just that. I mean, it's also a kind of tit for tat because after all, at the beginning of Exodus, the Pharaoh's out to try to kill all the Egyptian, all, all, all the Israelite firstborn. But, but, but you see how that, it so directly challenges the uh, religion and religious practice of the 13th century BC, what we know of Egypt. And you go much later and it changes and you go much earlier and it changes. So, so you're kind of left with two options there. One, which is they witness natural phenomena and they, those phenomena all happen to totally correspond with really symbolic takedowns of Egyptian ideology, which that doesn't seem like <laughs> that seems awfully coincidental. Or um, they are making this up um, and saying we're making a very specific allegory for this takedown, but you're, but you're also suggesting that that's really not, is that's not really a device used in that Hebrew, right? You know, is that, is that something you would do at the time you would create legend yeah. to try and, you know, do that? No, uh, you wouldn't. And that's the whole point. I mean, why is it that this is being done? Because what you have is you have Pharaoh on the one side who is claiming to be God, who is, who is the most powerful ruler on earth at that time known, I mean, the superpower of the day, and you have God on the other side. This is a direct challenge between God and Pharaoh. Now, if all of this were just made up and kind of added, this story would never have gotten off the ground. It's, 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 it's more likely that it was completely manufactured later on to justify Israel's origins and to give some explanation okay, so of that's, it. That's a Egypt. possibility. Okay. That's a possibility. But the idea that people sort of embellished a legend early on doesn't seem to work. And what's interesting too is it says in Exodus 15 when they're celebrating the song of the sea where Miriam, Miriam uh, sings this song in Moses, uh, it says, Canaan, the hearts of Canaan will hear of this and they will melt and the great fear will fall upon the entire land of Canaan. Move your Bible forward, flip forward to uh, Joshua 2 and the spies visiting Rahab, your average Canaanite who happens to live in Jericho. And she says, 
And when we heard about Egypt, and of course everybody would have heard because Egypt controlled Canaan at that time, it was part of their new kingdom empire. And so although they never advertised the defeat, Israel's victory over them, they would never have said that. But the word gets around like, like wildfire, I'm sure, that here are a group of slaves who have beaten the mighty Pharaoh and have, have escaped. Hmm. Rahab says, and when we heard this, our hearts melted in fear. She uses exactly the same language from Exodus 15. That is a prophecy, just like Moses' prophecies of the plagues, that was fulfilled from the biblical standpoint. Wow. So you mentioned a couple, some clues and evidence. I, I'm curious from an archaeological standpoint, um, the Old Testament is used right often to like identify it's the source where we begin a lot of these excavations and searches, right? It's like yeah. a, the ultimate guidebook, right? Yeah, people, I mean, there's a, a strong argument that says a lot of archaeology, particularly as it developed in the 19th and early 20th century, was motivated by going back and trying to find evidence for the truthfulness of Scripture and the Old Testament in particular. And how, so I'm curious, has there ever been any major, I know there's things like they haven't found the Ark yet, to my knowledge. I've heard claims multiple, <laughs> I've heard stories of that, but there's, has there ever been any major archaeological contradictions to the Bible? It says like, hey, this was supposed to be here and it was this and it's no, actually it's way over here and this calls into question or is that not really happened to your knowledge? Well, it's funny. First of all, the uh, archaeology doesn't really prove or disprove the Bible. In fact, I would say in general, it's really difficult to use artifactual and even other textual evidence to prove or disprove another document, Bible or otherwise. It just, they don't connect that easily. You know, we don't have Abram. We don't have Moses mentioned in extra biblical sources from that time. In fact, probably the earliest historically attested event that's in documents outside as well as in the Bible is the invasion of Sheshank or Shishak, the Pharaoh of Egypt, around 925 BC after Solomon has died and he comes in and, and uh, takes uh, Jerusalem and all the gold and silver out of the temple, lots of it and other things. And there is a reference to, well, the Pharaoh of that time being called, that was his name, and he records going into this region and attacking it. He doesn't actually, the texts we have don't mention Jerusalem, but the texts are broken and they aren't complete. But it's clear that that's probably the first, what you might call historical incident, where there's a direct connection with uh, outside the Bible. And then after that, you get them. I mean, the, one of the more famous ones is the story of Hezekiah in the Bible. It's mentioned three times in Kings, uh, in Chronicles, and in Isaiah. Uh, it's mentioned how uh, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, surrounds, well, first he captures Lachish, and then he destroys a lot of other towns of Judah. Then he surrounds um, or he comes up to Hezekiah in Jerusalem and threatens him and says, hey, you can't do anything. Your God is no great God. He, look at all these other gods. Uh, Syrians, they destroyed everyone. Their rates, their win rate is 
What do you think? You're going to stand against him? And uh, of course, the story, uh, he takes it and places this before God. Uh, Hezekiah does and places it in the temple, the letter of braggadocia that uh, Sennacherib brought against him. And the prophet Isaiah comes and says, this is the message God has said, Jerusalem will not fall. Now, we have that three times, and it didn't. And it says, angel death came and, and, and slaughtered many, many Assyrians. Uh, we have that mentioned three times in the Bible. We also have it in Sennacherib's own accounts, best preserved in his royal third campaign in the royal prism of Sennacherib, where it talks about, he says, all the places he went. He came to Lachish. He destroyed Lachish, the second city of the Judean kingdom after Jerusalem. And in fact, his palace back in, uh, in his home in Iraq is plastered, one of the central palace rooms is plastered with reliefs of the capture and destruction of Lachish. And you can see that today. It's in the British Museum, actually. If you go there, you really should, because it's a great, great uh, piece of art and also gives you a real good idea of what Judeans looked like in Old Testament times. But uh, what I wanted to say about that is that he never mentions taking Jerusalem. It's the only capital of any country that he came against that he never mentions. He says, I shut up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage in Jerusalem. But he never mentions destroying Jerusalem. Why? Because he didn't. If he could have, he would have. But God prevented it. It's a very interesting testimony, a bit of a negative testimony, but still, yeah. The war took place. It's all preserved, 701 BC. We've got the Siloam Tunnel. If you go over to Jerusalem, lots of people walk through it. You get yeah. wet and everything. Probably that, well, it almost certainly does because of the inscription that was found in the middle of it that says, hey, we built this, uh, to, you know, and uh, how the workmen met at the middle and everything else. And it yeah. dates from around that time, yeah. And a yeah. lot of other uh, evidence. So, do we have anything that, that disproves? Well, people say from time to time, one uh, used to say there were, no, there were no Hittites, and then they found the Hittite Empire in Anatolia. Yeah. Used to say, uh, uh, one, one that you'll still read because it hasn't gotten out very far yet is, well, I'll, I'll give you two examples while I'm at it. Probably the most significant archaeological discovery at the end of the 20th century was at Dan, at the, the, one of the, the northernmost uh, town in Israel. And uh, they found there, Avraham Biran, who had been excavating for decades there, found one time it, was, it had been reused and set as part of a wall. It was an inscription. It was an inscription set up by an Aramaic king. And he found it and mentioned it, and this came out in 1994. Well, the year before, a number of very skeptical scholars had published a book, and, a, and we're publishing a number of books, said there never was a David, there never was anything like that, it's all hooey. And we don't have, we have no, we had no reference to David before, outside the Bible that is, before the Hellenistic period, when Josephus and other people are writing, and maybe a little earlier than that, and writing their, their histories. No reference outside the Bible to David. Well, on this text, which is a text of an Aramaic king who has set up, uh, who set it up uh, probably from the ninth century BC, we can place it into biblical, uh, biblical period. It says, and I conquered and I killed kings or there were killed kings from Israel 
and the, the house uh, and and the house of Omri, which would be Ahab and his line. And we know uh, we we've had we have extra biblical evidence about that. But then he mentions and the house of David, which is the very term that's used by in the Bible to describe the dynasty of David, and it's from the ninth century, the 800s BC, very earliest mention of David outside the Bible, and a clear, the clearest evidence you can have that there was, that a figure named David was associated with the southern kingdom of Judah at least as early as 850 BC, wow. and was known outside by, by, by like an Aramean king. So really, but you see how that's kind of yeah. incidental. It's not Oh, this proves it or this doesn't prove right. it. It just sheds light. Now, more recently and less known is that for, uh, you can read just about everywhere. People say, will, will, will tell you Chaldees, the Chaldeans. Uh, they're mentioned in the Bible. And uh, Genesis 11 talks about Ur, or, uh, where Abram comes from as Ur of the Chaldees. And people have said, well, the skeptics have said, well, that's an example of uh, an anachronism. It cannot exist. Chaldeans did not exist before the 8th century because that's the first time they get mentioned in the Assyrian records outside the Bible as a tribal group. So the earliest we have is maybe 800 BC or a little later, we have Chaldeans. And that's the first time they're mentioned. And so anything earlier like this is either... Uh, an anachronism proving that this, this material was written much later, or uh, it's a gloss that was inserted just uh, by a later writer, which could be as well. And then about two years ago, uh, a text was published from 1100 BC that mentions the Chaldean people wow. uh, in the uh, Middle East, actually, in what is today northern Syria, southern Turkey, and around there, really where, where Abram comes from, uh, from Haran, that area. And it mentions Chaldean peoples there at, in 1100 BC. That's 300 years earlier. That goes back not to the time of Abram, but it gets very close or a lot closer to the time of Moses and when some of these things may have been written down. So it's a very interesting example of what sometimes can be blown into full-blown skepticism, but wow. really needs to be considered. I could go on like this. No, this is, this is great. I want to I make sure I respect your time um, as we get near the end here. I have a few more okay. lightning round questions I want to get okay. to. Um, so one thing just pops into mind. So did you... Did you believe the Old Testament when you started off studying it or was studying it a process that led you to believe in its reliability? Uh, walk me you know, quickly through your, your journey of, uh, and your uh, evolution of your beliefs as you've uh, yeah. studied the Old Testament. Well, I grew up in a very Christian background in church, uh, very conservative, um, and uh, coming out of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Dutch background, that sort of thing. Uh, never had any reason not to believe, went to a Christian college, went to a Christian seminary, went to a Jewish uh, graduate school um, uh, for my doctorate. And I never really had my faith challenged, so I just kind of believed it. But then I spent a couple years doing postdoctoral research. I was in Chicago for a bit at the university, but I, I also spent time in Israel. Uh, and, and while I was in Israel on some research grants, 
I was for the very first time in some very serious ways uh, challenged with regards to my faith. Mm. And uh, uh, could or did I believe this? Doesn't all this seem uh, really questionable? And it wasn't that I was question that I was questioning whether I believe in God, but the very things you're talking about is all of this stuff just uh, uh, higher uh, something to be understood higher critically as basically legend and so forth. And th that period of time was a period of time when I think I really scraped down to the bedrock of what my own beliefs were and then sort of rebuilt <laughs> my own beliefs uh, by the grace of God, guided by God and remaining uh, by his grace faithful in terms of belief. But at the same time, by doing that, it caused me to rethink a lot of things. And so when I talk and speak on different things in different ways, I, I do take some different approaches. But it's that is something of my faith journey. And then I, I, I moved back into doing some work, uh, postdoctoral work in Britain and elsewhere, some in Christian contexts, some in, in secular contexts and then teaching ultimately ending up here in Denver at Denver Seminary teaching. But uh, in many ways, my own beliefs and faith in terms of how I view the scriptures was something that I had to rebuild my, uh, uh, through, through God's grace, I do believe it was the grace of God, otherwise I don't see how I could have believed, but it was also through, my, uh, through understanding the world of the Old Testament, the archeology span and the texts and the material. So, so is the, that's thank you for sharing that. Uh, is, is, so would you say that you know because this happened I think in another interview we had where um, I think it was Dr. Keener who said, look, you know everyone comes in with a bias and everyone's got their bias and that's and you're going to approach the text that way and you're going to find great reasons to believe things. You're going to find great reasons to doubt things. And that was mm -hmm. in the context of the New Testament. Is it accurate to say in the Old Testament like if you really want to look like yeah, there's some. There's some really hard objections. I mean, obviously, the, the seas parting, I don't know what, what standard of proof one would need to prove that. I don't know how you, and how you would go about doing that, you know? So, but it sounds like, but hey, if you're looking for confidence in the reliability of the Old Testament, there's archaeological evidence, there's, uh, you know, there's historical clues everywhere, there's the way it's written, the structures, like, there's a lot of good reasons uh, to find it yeah. reliable. Yeah, there, I believe there is sufficient warrant for understanding the, I call them traditions, by which I don't mean to um, uh, demean them, but I, for various reasons, I prefer to use a term like that. There is, there is sufficient reason from the standpoint of somebody who simply studies the material historically for accepting a historical value or authenticity would be, perhaps be a better way of putting it to these traditions. That's not to say that every detail can be answered uh, or that we have evidence of the biblical characters, uh, particularly those in Genesis and Exodus and so forth. In, 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 in what I mean is in the early books. We'd, but it is to say that the world that we find described in the Bible is not that different from the world that we find in the extra biblical resources. Mm. Miracles are never going to be proven. 
That's why, in part, they're miracles. They call us to a point of faith. This is what Jesus said, a wicked and deceitful generation asks for a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah, in other words, of the resurrection. Um, no, I don't think, uh, and I'm not really that interested in trying to prove miracles because they are a matter of faith. They call us either to or against it. But I can, and, and you know, it's like Elijah raises and Elijah both raise a child from the dead. Well, you're never going to find evidence for that. You're never going to find proof of that, that they did that. But you will find that the world in which they did that was a world that is compatible with what we find in the book of Kings. Mm. And then the rest is a matter of believing the God of the Bible when he bears witness to these things or not. And you can say no, but it's sort of like in the New Testament too. Uh, if God is God, he's going to make some big claims and do some things, but he's also going to call us to faith. And that means he's not going to just simply prove everything in a, in a, as a, with a standard of a laboratory science or um, with the kind of standards that some people demand. Totally. No, that's, a, that's elo eloquently put. Um, I do have a last question for you on, uh, as far as the Old Testament goes, and I, I was wondering this while we were speaking about Genesis, would that have just been, a, someone would have dictated that onto a scroll and then they would have, pass that down and then it, it comes up a lot like how we actually know what these things said and like how do we have these preserved copies because this goes back a long time ago so yep. Yep. how do we know what we got is accurate well again if you want to say scientifically can we reproduce it in a lab no uh, we don't but there are several things that give us sufficient warrant for give me sufficient warrant for faith and belief. One is what we've talked about, that this world is not totally, it wasn't totally created like some have argued in the second century BC when some of our earliest Old Testament manuscripts are, because people could not have known the details and the realia of what we would call the Iron Age and even the Bronze Age, uh, the way it's described. Secondly, we do have evidence of manuscripts from as early, the earliest biblical manuscripts that amount to more than just a few verses. There's, a, there's a two silver scrolls dating from around 600 BC that were found in Jerusalem preserving the blessing of Aaron and possibly one or two other verses on them. But beyond that, the earliest biblical texts we have are the Dead Sea Scrolls, from around the, as early as the second century BC, maybe 200 BC, and uh, some of the fragments, uh, much smaller fragments found in the sands of Egypt. It has to be in a very dry place. That's the only place papyrus and vellum are preserved uh, for this mm. length of time, and the Dead Sea is a place like that. I can show you a text like 1Q Isaiah B, dating from around 100 BC, and I can compare it with Codex Leningrad, which is the Hebrew text from 1000 AD on which all modern translations of the Old Testament are based. Um, we still have that. We have that in our possession. There are 44 chapters of Isaiah in 1Q Isaiah B that are preserved. Other than words like his versus theirs, 
an, an and here versus no and there or something like that. But basically what you would call the, the major nouns and verbs, there are only 11 words that disagree between those two texts. Five are added and six are taken away. Otherwise, it's the same. Wow. Over a thousand years before the printing press, hand copy. 4Q Genesis B, again from around the same time, uh, has the first four chapters of Genesis in it, on it, uh, including in chapter four, the story of Cain and Abel. Again, looking at Codex Leningrad from 1000 AD, it's word for word identical. Word for word identical, no change. Now, there's a lot of variations in different manuscripts among the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm not denying that. But I'm saying there was a central tradition that was preserved through the most careful of copying and where we can examine it. And that includes some of the most important Old Testament texts for basing Christian theology on, I don't know, like the beginning of Genesis and the book of Isaiah. These are pretty darn important. Where we can measure it, we have an absolutely reliable text. Mm. So did it, was it changed dramatically before that? Well, I don't have the evidence. I can't give you the manuscript evidence, but I can say that where I can measure it, I have reason for faith in its rely, basic reliability. That makes because people say that like oh it's like telephone and how do you know it didn't get messed up along the way yeah but, oh, oh yeah yeah and and that's right so that's the one point in terms of the manuscript evidence we do have and it's not small and then the other point is the reliability uh, where we can measure historical archaeological and other things that the biblical text witnesses to right because if they made any major changes. Like even theologically, I, I've always been interested because this is an objection that I've had. But I'm like wondering if you actually had someone just making all these changes, like someone would know, right? If you altered this theology, or sure. like, I mean, you'd be yeah. able to look back and be like, "Hey, they, this one now says this, and now it's messed up the whole thing." Yeah, you would, and that's absolutely true. And and I mean, how do you prove it? It's like um, there were some inscriptions found and published in the 19. Uh, late 70s, early 80s. And they mention, they could date from around 800 BC, come from the Northeastern Sinai in Hebrew. They mention, they include blessings and other texts that mention Yahweh and Asherah, as though these two are a consort. They're together. And this is the first time we've ever come across this because the Old Testament says nothing about this. It certainly says that there is a false deity or a pagan, whatever you want to call it, deity named Asherah, one name Baal, and there's the true worship of Yahweh. And generally people tended to see these as a dichotomy. You people either worship Baal and Asherah, they worship Yahweh. Now we learn that religion was much more complicated and there was worship of both and an interaction. Wow. And there were people who saw Yahweh as kind of the chief God of the pantheon. Asherah was his consort. And uh, just like in some of the surrounding cultures, and then the other gods were there, they, they were the parents, basically. Wow. Um, that exists. But that led some people to argue, well, see, this is proof that nobody ever believed in one God until 
600 BC or sometime like that, when for political purposes, Josiah made up one God, and some people said much later. So I wrote a book called Israelite Religions, where I took all the evidence, the biblical and archeological evidence, and it is my argument is that there is sufficient warrant to accept that there were people who believed in one God from very early in Israel's history, and there were people who believed in many gods, which is of course exactly what the Bible says. But what I'm saying is that um, there are different ways that people have interpreted that evidence. No, and so you have to be careful looking back, you can have people where they will make certain statements about certain things and the, the evidence doesn't always support it. And there are other ways of looking at it. And in this case, that's all I was doing. But I wrote that book back in 2006 called Israelite Religions. And it's been used in major universities. It's been used in Christian institutions and elsewhere because there isn't a lot written on this, on, on this whole question. And yet it's a very important question. Did the belief in one God simply evolve out of a belief in many gods? Or was there something there from the really early, even from the very beginning? And it maybe came through revelation or, or something like that. Wow. Well, this has been amazing. And since, unfortunately, unlike the early Genesis record, we don't live to be 800, um, I will <laughs> let you go for I know our time is uh, our time is limited, but I hope you'll come back because we didn't even get to, there's so many, as you talk, there's so many more questions I have. We, there's so many books, the Old Testament, we didn't get to get to. Uh, so we'll have to, we'll have to, but thank you, Dr. S for joining us. Sure. And really, really appreciate it. So folks, thank you for listening to Kind of Christian. This has been an amazing discussion of the Old Testament with Dr. Hess. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Kind of Christian. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review.